Hello, this is Bernadette Wintersbell, your host of the podcast from heartache to healing and hope. And as always, I have a special, special guest for you. So here in season three, titled From Heartache to the Art of Healing, I have a different kind of art that actually I didn't even know about until Jan updated me and educated me. So Jan Winburn, welcome to the podcast. Hi there. Thank you, Bernadette. Um, my name's Jan Winburn, and I um, was telling Bernadette recently that I um, taught a course uh, this past semester on trauma journalism. So I've been a journalist for 45 years, and um, I've seen over time what it means um, to be a journalist who has to cover all kinds of tragic events. Mm. And um, so my course was really on how to do that, how to uh, report on um, trauma and do it in such a way that you don't re-traumatize the person. Um, That's what it was fundamentally. Also about how to take care of yourself as a journalist when you have to do that kind of work. I love it. You know, when we were first talking and I was thinking in my head, That's how you, she's teaching how you report humanely and compassionately. You know, just the facts, ma'am, is is not enough because this isn't a dog is lost. You know, this is people could be lost or land, homes, whatever the situation is. Mm -hmm. And to think that this, when you forge this idea that it was new is sad actually to me you know that that it was but that happens with a lot of things that we don't know and maybe we're not aware of you know so tell me first how you came to the place to say this is something that needs to be researched and taught right so first of all I want to say there is um an organization called the DART uh, Center. It's a DART Center for Trauma Journalism. They've done tremendous work over probably about the past, I want to say 25 years, um, you know, aware of this need um, for this kind of teaching, but also for this kind of self-care. So that's been around it's not always something you're introduced to as a young writer um, in a newsroom. And that was certainly the case when I was starting out. Um, no one talked about how do you, how are you going to interview? It's just go, go out there and knock on their door, you know? And um, I watch this play out a lot as an editor myself, where people um we're going and doing this work and, and sometimes having success and, and sometimes not many times having doors slam in their faces. Um, so I, I just want to be clear that there's a lot of people really doing the work. What's not being done enough is it's not being taught to young journalists in journalism schools. Um, there was a survey a few years ago, and I think there was only about five journalism schools in the country, I think it was less than that actually, who actually taught um, uh, students about covering trauma. But my own interest in it really goes back um, to, I think I was about three years out of journalism school. I was 23 when my older brother, Jim, um, who was an Air Force pilot, died in a plane crash. Mm -hmm. And he was 26 years old. I was at my parents' house. Um, We'd gathered there just after getting the news. And the phone rang and I picked it up and it was someone from the Kansas City Star, a reporter. So here I was, a young journalist, really for the first time being on the flip side um, of that interview. And the guy was, he was nice. Uh, You know, he wanted to get information about my brother, but he also asked some questions in ways that were, um, I felt offensive. One of the things he said to me was, well, um, so there had been a big storm had socked in while they were flying. And um, my brother's plane hit a mountain in uh, on the Utah Nevada border. So weather was being cited as a cause. And what he said to me was, well, do you think weather was really the cause or did your brother or the pilot do something wrong? 
And, you know, here I am absorbing um, this loss and to get a question like that, as though my brother were to blame himself, right? First of all, it's inappropriate. (laughs) Second of all, what made him think that you were in the plane and say, well, how would I know? Exactly right. You didn't even have the information. So to put it forth, you know, right. It was just, it was just a question that probably just tumbled out of his mouth and he may have regretted it himself having said it, but it was, it kind of set something in me where I was like, wow, that's how it's done. You know, I don't think so. And then over the course sort of, of, of my own growing up from that age and also working as a journalist, I also saw this other thing, which was that all the headlines that we would print they marked some kind of ending. And, and if you think about it, even today, look at your newspaper or whatever you scroll um, right. on your phone. The headlines are very often about endings. And there's always another story that's about to unfold out of that ending. So my brother's life ended. That was the headline. But now there was a story that was going to unfold. And that was about my family and how we would live that loss. So that's the kind of story I became interested in telling. It's sort of... um, the story behind the headline, I guess. Well, you know, when you hear the headlines of uh, there's a a tornado or a hurricane and you often, I do, think about what happens when the headline is gone and the television cameras are gone and the people are starting to um, try to regroup, you know, like when there was that terrible hurricane down in Florida, Ian, Mm -hmm. and it, it, it said it was going to be horrible, and it was. So another one comes along, maybe not even six weeks later. And they were reminding people, most people haven't recovered yet from Ian. And I thought, recovered? They'll be lucky if they got the, the water sogged things out of their house. Exactly. <laughs> is long time away. But for us that weren't there, life went on. Right. And that happens in many of these stories, for sure. Right. Yeah, And those those stories um, of going on, you know, they're often surprisingly um, uplifting stories. They can, you know, people's resilience. I mean, it's one of the amazing things about human beings is the resiliency. That's not always the case. The other thing is, as time goes on, people process what's happened to them. And so, you know, this urge that we have as journalists to get them in the moment and like ask how they feel. It's like, well, what do you think about how they feel? They, they, they feel terrible there. They can't even articulate how they feel. Much later, not only can they articulate it, but they very often have some insight. Exactly. Which then they can offer to the reader, right? So I those think- That part, I'm sorry to interrupt, is so interesting to me also, because after they've processed it a bit and have some insight, I think for me, that's what I call the gifts. You know, there's the gifts of the dying, the gifts of the the grieving, um, and they're all grieving losses in these situations. Um, And the gifts also are for the people listening, because that's what offers hope. Like, even if they don't consciously understand that they're putting inside of them the thought that this was a terrible situation and somebody got through it. Yeah. And maybe that seed goes in and when they go through something and they might not even know they're drawing upon it, but it's like, maybe I can get through this because I've heard that other people could, you know, or I don't feel as strong as them. Oh, that's right. They said they didn't feel strong at the time either. I think it's a wonderful gift for those, the interviewer, the interviewee and and the, the audience. Yeah, yeah, it's really everybody wins in that situation. Exactly. exactly. So, so that was really, that's kind of, I spent my career um in newsrooms trying to uh, dispatch people to tell those kinds of stories. I was very fortunate. I worked places where people got that. They understood that was what I was good at and let me push push us in that direction some. 
um, when I stopped working in newsrooms, I began teaching. And so that's where that connection of like now, after all these years, sort of going back to the young journalists, the, the, the next generation and hoping to help them see the opportunities in that kind of storytelling. But also, you know, nowadays it, it's so much worse. It, it, like things that you used to be able to cover with uh, a certainty of safety, it, it's not true anymore. You, you know, in this, you, you could go cover, um, I'm thinking of Gabby Giffords getting killed, getting shot, right? Um, and some other people killed when she was just out at a grocery store, I think it was, just doing her political thing, right? So um, you don't expect to be um, covering violence in that kind of situation. And then in the matter of a second, you are. Um, and so I feel like I've, been, I've begun to see a few stories written by reporters who've talked about, for instance, how many mass shootings they've covered. Mm. And, uh, you know, doing it with sensitivity, I think, is the utmost importance. But then also knowing that you're a human being first really and and how are you going to carry that that on you on your heart and um just you know wanting people to to know it's okay to talk about that like you know I came up in a newsroom that was very male mm-hmm. um there were very few women back then and there was just this kind of buck up mentality you know you didn't dare talk about you know, how something made you feel when you were covering it. You mean so, you didn't say, hey, guys, let's go out for a beer and talk about our feelings? <laughs> yeah, no. Go out for a beer, yes, but not, not ever bury our feelings, right? <laughs> Self-medicate uh, our feelings. I think. That's right, exactly. Yeah. So when you're teaching, um, like contrasting teaching at the beginning and more recently, um, are you finding the um, reporters are more open to be sensitive to their own feelings? Or and yeah, I think there's, yes, yeah. I, I think there's a much higher awareness now. And again, I credit places like the Dart Center, who's been doing a lot of that professional teaching um, to professionals, but also um, journalists are just starting to coalesce a little bit, um, you know, realizing, as you were saying earlier, I'm not alone, you know, somebody there, there and there, they've also um, been, you know, subjected to some of this coverage. And so they're talking, there's actually a Facebook um, group called journalists covering trauma. Mm -hmm. And they do a lot of, it's a private group, but they do a lot of conversation there. um, Also sharing you know, tips or articles, things written about it. So I, th- I think it's much, um, it, even among professionals, it, it's, uh, it's a more open conversation. And then I think students and journalists just coming up are, are benefiting from that, clearly. How wonderful. Yeah. Could you have imagined how far it's come since you became, uh, I mean, how wonderful actually for, for yeah. us the public that you were such a young age when that terrible tragedy happened with your brother, but that the reporter asked that question, you know, and I, and I, of course I make it sound like it was a completely conscious thing, but I know it was, was really subconscious. But I also was never, it kind of went along with the fact that I was always more interested, you know, in why something happened or what happened um later than sort of the typical news who what where when why I was always sort of more in like well why does that matter what does that mean and so with that you know it it just really informed that I also had this experience of of seeing um how long it took me you know as a 23 year old and losing my brother that way how long it took me to see what you call the gifts Mm. and I I can remember the day I finally saw that yeah it was um I was turning 40. Which is I have to tell you that's a relatively short period of time although you may look at it like my god it took me till I was 40. No right right 
but I remember it. So my brother actually, so this is interesting. We're talking today. It was 45 years ago this week that he died. And I also have a birthday in December. So those have always come close together. And uh, when I was turning 40, I was driving in my car and I remember thinking, oh, wow, the parts of myself that I like were formed out of his death. And of course, I would change it in a minute, right? But that feeling of like knowing that the impact of his death had, had given me tools or attributes or ways of seeing the world or whatever that were things I liked was huge. But it, uh, to me, it took so long, right? Oh, right. I, I just was like, okay, whoops, I woke up and I'm 40 years old. But, but the truth um, is that there's so few people talking about this, yeah, you know, yeah. that that's the reason using your words, it took you so long because, but you came to it on your own, to be honest with you, when most, if they get it, that's an if, okay, a profound loss happens later in life that causes us, allows us, or forces us, you can pick your verb, how you're feeling about my sentence, um, to reevaluate everything, because it shakes our world so much, right? And I've had people, many, many, many people say, I'm 60, I'm 70, I'm 80, I'm this, I'm that, and I'm just getting it. It doesn't actually matter what age a person is. They say the same thing. I can't believe I was 40 until it happened. Yeah. So the truth is, is that until we have what I deem a profound loss, which to me is um, when someone dies, or it could be a loss of a different kind, but we'll talk about a death here. Um, And it's not the title of the person. It's the heart to heart connection between you and the person, you and the dog, you and the situation. So even if it's not mother, grandmother, brother, you know, just a neighbor, it's the heart to heart connection. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that I've determined is that where are you developmentally in your life? Now, it's a term we use with children generally, but we're developmentally you're launching, you're getting ready for your career in the world. Are you a a young mother with children? Are you getting ready to retire? When we're at or near or thinking about a crossroads and it's, and it's someone that you have a strong heart to heart connection. That's a profound loss. Oh, wow. Yeah. That makes sense to me. It doesn't have to be a blood relative or a, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, but I have a question for you. So, it took me from 23 to 40, right? So this is another thing that I've observed. So my daughter essentially lost her father. Now her father um, had a brainstem stroke when she was 13 years old and he has severe brain damage. He didn't die. He's, he's still with us. Um, he lives in assisted living and she and I see him every week. Um But my daughter, I remember she was 13 and it was, it was really the same as just completely losing your father. And, um, and yet I think she was only about 18. And I remember we were driving in the car. Some must be something about driving in cars for me. She said, um, you know, mom, I really wish what happened to dad hadn't happened but I think it's made me a better person. So in like five years time, she came to the same conclusion that it took me whatever. Okay. One One of the differences there is that it's similar to someone that died, but the way that it's different besides the obvious is that you're not say you're, you're for your daughter. She's not saying, Oh, I'm going to graduate high school. And he won't see it. Like she could go and visit him and tell him and maybe he'll get it, maybe not. He's not going to walk me down the aisle or, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So you process more than the person has left your life. I get it. Processing where they're not going to be going forward. So because he was still in her life in a very different way, she possibly, and I wasn't there, 
I don't know, but she possibly could have processed it what seems like quicker. Mm-hmm. She was going through a different set of circumstances. I think that ma- that makes sense. And she's 31 now. And on the other hand, you know, I see her still processing it, right? Well, Just like me. <laughs> well, when I hear people say things like, um, I need to get over this, or aren't you over it? Oh, I get, ooh. First of all, you get over the measles. You don't get over a loss. You you process it as best you can. Over and over and over. Because you're trying to make sense of something that doesn't make sense. You know? So I was just saying the other day. So to me, let's say grief starts out as this teeny little pebble. And it grows to be a stone and a rock. And, you know, I'm often talking to people that have boulders. Okay. And the boulder has no place. It's not as if grief is a space inside of your body or your mind or your spirit waiting to be filled. Okay. So you're taking this boulder and go, where am I going to put it? And it, it doesn't fit anywhere. And so when we're going through the, the process of the grieving process, we're trying to find a place for something that has no place, the round thing into the square hole, right? Right. Right. And so that's the reason that it feels so uncomfortable, so wrong. This shouldn't be, people say all the time, this shouldn't have happened, right? Mm -hmm. Because they can't find a place for it. You know, when we fall in love with something, a person, a lamp, an animal, we, we, we find that place. Place for it, right. Woo! You know, and so the heal to me, the grieving process leading to the healing process is, I guess, identifying the home for the grief. Where am I going to carry this that's not harmful to me? So let's say, for instance, that someone has been thinking about a loss for a long time. So it's in their head, which is now like a bowling ball, you know, with a couple of holes, (laughs) right? And, and let's say that it doesn't get far. So maybe it's here. Stuff. And they walk around like that, you know, which, which of course is not comfortable. Or it's in their belly. Or sometimes I see it in people's knees or legs, like they can't walk forward in life. They mm-hmm. can't move forward. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So we're trying to find a place for it where we can carry it. Right. We don't want to. So I always say to people, you don't have to like this. And you don't have to agree with it ever. But honoring it is what's important. And that's what you're talking about in that reporting is that they're not going to agree with the situation or like it that they're reporting on, of course. Right. But you're educating them uh, gently, or maybe not so gently, suggesting to them <laughs> that they honor it. Yeah. which is mean to do it in a humane manner. Yeah. So so one thing that's been so interesting, uh, so I make my students mm-hmm. port on a story in which there was some kind of loss. Okay. So, so they're going to survivors or, um, you know, the people left behind in those instances. And what's so interesting to me was to watch them. One, they're terrified. They have serious questions about the worth and value of even doing such a story. I mean, they really challenge you ethically, right? Like, well, what good is that? Why should we even report on that? And then once they've done it, once they've interviewed the person, they're just completely changed by it. And it was all their fear. Many times the people want to talk about their loved one. It may be it may be the last time they get to talk about their loved one because people don't ask you. People are, you know, skittish about, oh, I don't want to bring that up. And I don't want to make them sad. Like they're not thinking about the person. Yeah. They're not thinking about it. Exactly. Right, right. And, you know, I, I saw this happen returning to that story of my brother. So I grew up in a small town and I have a younger brother as well. So there were three of us kids my mom was a banker, and so she knew everyone in town, right? And I think something like 
probably 20, 25 years after my brother's death, I was with her one time and um, we pulled up to, um, we were going to get ice cream. And we pulled up to this ice cream shop and started to get out. And my mom said, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. And we sat, she wanted to wait in the car. And I thought, sort of typically like, oh, probably a customer she doesn't really want to run into or something because she knew everyone. And I watched and it was a man and a woman with three toe-headed kids, you know, boom, 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 going into the shop. And she didn't know them, but she just, it, it came over her like seeing those three kids. And she just was very emotional. And then she told me this story. She said, you know, Jan, my favorite people in this town are the ones who remember your brother, Jim, and sometimes ask, say something about him to me. She said, they're the people who know I had three children. And she said, but now 25 years later, most of my customers, they just think I have two kids and they're, they're never going to say, oh, I remember when your son did X, Y, Z. And so her favorite people were the ones who knew. And that helped me to understand that people don't talk to you about it, you know, that there's that reluctance to maybe at the time people can say, I'm really sorry for your loss, right? But after that, maybe he's in a better place. Uh, God doesn't give us anything we can't handle. The door closes, the window opens, you know, unhelpful things. They're right. They're all, we say them because, I don't know, we heard somebody else say them. They're completely useless things. You know what somebody taught me one time was, um, she said, Nobody uses my husband's name. That's who had passed. Mm-hmm. They always use pronouns. He. I want them to say George. No, not no. him, not he. Right. Because then he was erased one step further than not yeah. just being here oh, in person. That's right. A, that's a great lesson. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because we're not reminding people of the person who died. It hasn't, it hasn't left their attention. Yeah. Right. I don't want to upset them. Yeah. If they're in a place where tears are close, whether you say something or not, they're there. Yeah, right. that's right. That's what right. you're giving the person is respect. Yeah. You know, like when someone would say to your mom, you know, I, when I just saw you now, I'm reminded when I saw you, and the, the two boys and your daughter, whatever, yeah. at the soccer field or something like that. And that was a sweet memory. Yeah. And if that's the only thing that can be said or will be said, what a gift. A gift. There you go. Right. But to your point, had they used his name? And said, I remember when seeing you take Jim with Jan and Jack to, you know. I- Using his name is like so powerful. You think because, about it. Exactly. Because then you're really giving them the essence of life yeah. in your heart. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a good one to hold on to. Yeah. I'm going to teach that. Okay. So Steal it away. <laughs> so don't just show up and say, I'm sorry about your son. Use their name, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Because it just gives it more I don't know, credibility comes to comes to mind. Or right. something it gives them flesh and blood in yes. some yes, absolutely. You know, sometimes um I ask in my life loss and grief practice, um, if I see someone, it just seems appropriate. Um, I'll have them bring in a picture of their loved one. Um, first, so I see a picture, I know the name. And I know facts, but I want to, I like seeing a picture. And one woman loved it so much, they always came together. <laughs> Her and John always came to a session. That's so awesome. She'd just bring them every time. Right. So, you know, um, and the thing about that that gives it more credibility is that to say, this person is still in my life. He may not physically be alive, but he's very much in my life. And when your reporters are out there, 
besides that, when did the tornado come through or what happened or, you know, the area of a war of a battle, where are your children? Where is your family? You know, right, right. To give it more real substance. Yeah. It's funny. We talk about that in, in other kinds of reporting that you need to, to go deeper and, and know who they are, not just the circumstance that happened to them, but like, you know, so, so what you're saying is really that that's even more important in a situation where someone has suffered a loss. Absolutely. That helps you make, I mean, present them as whole people, not as people with a hole in them. Right. Exactly. So when I'm speaking, doing counseling, um, someone will say, and then my brother, and I'll say, and his name is, I ask everybody's name. They think that they're burdening me yeah. to, to give names that I don't, I talk to a lot of people. I don't have time to remember. And I, what I always say is it's actually easier for me because when the person is in front of me, most of the time, I remember the, the names. Yeah which is easier than one of my sisters. Oh no, which one was this? You know, that's confusing, but it also isn't solid enough for me. If I'm going to make connections as that they're giving me these facts that I'm going to support this person, I want to know this is Kathleen and this is Samantha. It makes it more real for me. So I can make the support and healing more real for them. That I don't think I've quite said it like that before. Yeah. That really makes sense. So I heard this TV reporter, um, he was talking about a story he did. And I thought this was a really great lesson. He said that um, it was, uh, he wanted to talk to the father of a girl who was um, killed somehow. I don't remember the details, but what I remember what he said to the father was he said, <clears throat> You know, I'd, I'd like to speak to you about your daughter. Um, I understand if you're not ready to do that or, or you don't want to do that with me right now. I just would like for her, I, I just feel that if it were my daughter, I'd want her to be remembered for more than what happened to take her life. Yeah. And, you know, and it was sincere, of course, which is like one of the things I have to underline is like, don't ever make a pitch that you don't believe in, you know, don't say this is going to be something that you don't believe it can be or whatever. So, but that was how he, he actually had a daughter and he could say, I I'd want her, I'd want people to know more than just what happened to take her life. Right. And that I think that this all connected to your, to what you say you do in your grief counseling. It's it's trying to um, put that person back into the world in some way. Because that's how they are in your heart and in your spirit, in your mind. Yeah. And so you don't not going to say to people, okay, so let's make believe George is still alive. And if he was, this is how we would talk about it. A different counseling session. (laughs) But (laughs) What you're saying, right? But what you are saying is he has been alive for me for 45 years or whatever, right? And he still is. And I want to talk about him that way. I want to share him that way. Not in, well, George died. Okay, what are we having for dinner? You know, and just moving on like that. Right, right. I actually think for for people who've suffered a loss. I should just say for myself, the people who allow me to speak about my brother are my favorite people. I mean, this week on December 3rd, I got a text from a friend that I've known my entire life. And she was just like, I'm just thinking about your brother, Jim, today and you. And he was so important to my life, too, growing up, you know, and it was just like out of the blue, right? nobody else except my other brother that day, you know, did I get to speak to about him? So I think it's another, it's a, it's another kind of gift. You know, when you talk about the gifts, there's some you get 
internally. And then you get these ones from the few rare people who somehow know, probably because it's happened to them, right? Right. You, you Actually, you don't know till you know. That's mm-hmm. one thing. Yeah. And the other thing is, is she was reaching out to you saying he was important to me also. So I want to share this thought on this date, which she obviously had the date marked or has a great memory um, and wanted to share that. And often what I hear from people is, oh, I was going to say something, but I thought, nah, you know, I'd upset you or things like that. Share it. Be brave. (laughs) Don't be rude, you know, but right. Absolutely. Wow. So I think what my students experienced from that fear of talking to someone about their loss was that there actually was purpose in telling those stories, right? The thing, the very thing they challenged me on once they experienced that interview and, and I think saw one that they're the ones who have all this hang up about talking about it Two that, um, that, that the way people often will embrace that opportunity to talk about the person they loved and lost, that it's, it, you've, you've become like a conduit for that. And it's, and it's, I mean, it's beautiful. It's just between the two of you, but if you're a reporter and a writer, you can also put it in the world in a way that um, extends the gift, right? And they never, they never saw that coming. They never. Well, let's think about what people are willing to talk about, about death and dying. To me, dead is like the last four letter word out there. (laughs) And, and we've come a long way in say the last 20 years, but still. And so if you say to a reporter, here's a good idea. I want you to go talk to somebody whose daughter died in such and such a thing. And let's see what the story is now. Really? The daughter died. They're sad. They're upset. They moved on. And like, what's the story? That's how people think of death. Yeah, It's going to happen. I'm going to be sad or mad or whatever. They, they understand they're going to have a big emotion for some time. And of course, the sometime they're thinking of is, you know, this much. And then they're going to get over it and move on. Because we live in a society that says, let's go in a linear trajectory that goes up like this. I'm down here and I've gotten over the death. Of course, that's not what grief looks like. Grief looks like back to my head. (laughs) Right. So what do you think of this thing I've read has happened recently, which is what's it called? The manual, the DSM? Yeah, the DSM. Mm-hmm. They're saying that if you're still grieving after one year and you can't and you're like can't ha- function normally in your life, that it's going to be categorized as some kind of mental illness. Right. What? Yes, <laughs> that's one of my thoughts. Um, <laughs> so where Can the helpful in some way? I, I mean, well, y- yes and no. Okay can't function well in your life is the key phrase here. Yeah. If you're unable to get out of bed and go to work after a year, some work needs to be done there. Okay. If that is interpreted as it takes a year and by the first day of the second year, it's all done. And they don't mean to say that, but there's many people that already believe that. They assume, like they hear the year of first, it'll be the first anniversary, first Thanksgiving, all of that. And it'll be a year. Okay, I got it. Mom died and it'll be a year. And somehow, not that they're thinking of it like this, they're going to wake up on the first day of the second year. Well, it's all good now, ready to go. No. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly how it doesn't go. Right. So... The, the part of the, the DSM, which is used to diagnose people and things like that, that's good about it being in there is that they're talking about it <laughs> and that and that 
complicated or compounded bereavement and grief is being acknowledged. But anytime you put a definition on something. Or a time frame. Right. But they have to be be able to say, um, this is a diagnosis and the person can go for therapy and be reimbursed by the insurance company. I mean, that's where I, at first I was so outraged by that idea. And then I was like, "Eh, you know, read the finer point, like fine print on it. And I did think that it was like, well, maybe this means people can get insurance to pay for health. Well, that's what it's about. That's what the DSM is, is giving. It's not giving a diagnosis just so you have a diagnosis. You know, you have four sheet, four sets of towels, some sheets and a diagnosis. I mean, you don't have to have it to live. (laughs) Right. It's, 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 it's when it's useful. um, And it usually has to do with insurance. So they have to give it a time frame. It's how the things get mushed around, which is another very important clinical term um, (laughs) that people take and then say, um, you have to see my father. It's been over a year since mom died and he should be over it by now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a couple steps back. Let's start again. (laughs) Right. Right. So it's, for me, it's the same thing as for you. This is about education. This is about identifying a subject that we're passionate about and then educating others so that there is more widespread knowledge. You know, we can't be the two only flipping geniuses. There are there, Jen. (laughs) Who knows? I'm flipping anyway. I don't know about genius. (laughs) (laughs) Right, 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 right. But that's the beauty of this, yeah. So if if you were teaching, if you came to my class and it was a bunch of reporters who were learning about how to handle, you know, these kind of sensitive situations. And and to your point, it's all loss. It's, you know, I I call it sometimes like the everyday traumas. I mean, they're car wrecks and, and your the person you loved has Alzheimer's now and doesn't even recognize you. I mean, there's just all kinds of everyday kind of traumas, right? But if they were covering any of that, what is something you would tell them that they might not know going into that kind of situation? I mean, you have these people walk into your office and probably have some awareness the fe- by by virtue that they brought themselves there, right? That there's a struggle going on. But sometimes a reporter might be approaching someone who um, is still still making that discovery or just maybe still in shock part of or, it. Or doesn't know that subconsciously they're processing it and thinking they're moving along. That happens, that disconnect. Oh, yeah, pretty good. Yeah, we're moving along. Because first, it's not denial. It's their conscious sense of where they are in the process. It's all they can deal with right now. And then something will happen. Yeah. Another loss, a trauma, something that shakes them. So I think of us in those states, underneath is this little earthquake going on very mild you you don't have a firm footing and grounding but it's not enough to say there's a problem but then one day it shakes and that's what shakes you and then you go back to the grieving process and the healing work because now you're ready to do that piece yeah so because so when you said that that is something you hear so often when you interview someone and say like, oh, we're okay, we're doing all right. We're putting one foot in front of the other. And the question is always in my mind is like, okay, like I either just accept this answer or do I dare push them, you know, as a reporter, like well, I think that, with me or maybe yeah, they're just not there. I was talking to your reporters. Which, yeah. by the way, is a great idea. So, yeah, it is a great idea. Yeah, right, right. As we're talking, it's a great idea. Is if someone gave them, um, I'm doing okay. I might, 
honor that by saying how amazing that you feel like you can put one foot in front of the other. What have you found the hardest part to be able to do this? I wouldn't question that they do it. I would ask how they do it. And then they're going to tell you about what didn't work and that I don't have a choice. You don't know. I have three children or I have grandchildren depending on me. And then I might say what I say in my practice is actually you do have a choice and you're choosing to go forward to every day, get out of bed, get washed, get dressed and move. You don't see it as a choice because that's the person you are in this world. Right. But you are making a choice. Bernadette, not only are you a good therapist, but you'd be a really good reporter too, because that you, you ask the question of them in exactly the right way, which is like, that's great. You're doing that. What are you doing to do that? Or how, how is it? How are you able to do that? Awesome. <laughs> yeah, well, be well, thank you. If I ever get another job, which right now I don't, <laughs> but you never know. I like to, to do different things. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, actually, I'm working now on a documentary and a book. And what that piece is about, besides the telephone of the wind that we've spoken of, I could teach to your class because the important piece is for the writers, the reporters to be aware of their beliefs about life, death, and dying. Mm -hmm. They can't, they can't, it would be optimum if they had personal information before they go asking other people. And that leads to the what you were saying before. They don't know why you're sending them off to talk to people afterwards. Like, what's the point? Right. Yeah. right. So, all right, good. All right. So we'll we'll book it into the spring se- uh, semester and we'll do something. Sounds good. That really sounds good to me. I'm I'm all good. I love teaching. I, obviously, we're we're teachers here. Wow. So as you've been going through all of this, and it's so informative to you, um, as you're teaching others, you know, of course, we learn, you know, yeah, I know, uh, all the time, I'll say something to a, a client, and I'll be like, Ooh, that was good. I think I'll steal that from myself. You know, like, yeah, right, good stuff comes out, as um, you're creating. What have you found has been, for you, the most impactful thing that you've learned? For your healing? I know that's a, that's a good question. Um, as I've taught them, what have I learned? Well, so many things. Some some things about the craft, actually, um, of what we do. But I think more um, probably because I taught. So I've taught professionals, but. This past semester, I taught students, undergraduates and graduate students. And I think what what I learned is in observing them, like how just being open is kind of the most important thing you can be as a journalist, but as a human being, just like, yeah, trying to like listen when you want to judge and speak and all those things because I see them do it. I mean, that's the only way they got from, you know, I don't want to do this. Are we sure should we, we should even be doing this to, oh my gosh, that was an amazing experience. They end up feeling honored that people have spoken to them about the worst day of their life, right? Maybe and one that, of their most intimate events in their life. Yes. Absolutely. And, and so when I see that, I realize I gave them a big push, but they were open enough. They're, they're in their stage of life, as you were mentioning, where they, they're clearly growing and learning, but like, that's what we all, you know, are all the time anyway. Well, Uh, What we hope, well, we yeah. hope so. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Wow, it's just a really good. Like, see them do it. I'm like, okay, right. Am, exactly. I, am I doing that? Yeah, right. It, I love when y- you see someone reluctant. Um, 
is a good way to describe it, um, to do something. And they go to do it, whether they feel like they have to sort of open, sort of not. And then the moment of, oh, I'm hearing something I didn't expect. Oh, I'm learning. Oh, I'm growing. All right. Maybe they're not having all those thoughts. (laughs) But we are watching it. Like, wow, look what was there. Right. Oh, I love that. I love that. And so that leads to what this third season has meant to me, you know, from heartache to the art of healing. And truly, this is the art of healing. There's a science there, you know, and we talk about that from the uh, educational uh, perspective. But the art of healing, when you have the humans involved, you know, they're not as easy to (laughs) heal, damn it. (laughs) Whoa, this has been a fascinating, fascinating conversation. Oh, I want to thank you so much. People are going to be so interested in this. Where can they go, Jan, to learn more about you and the work that you're doing? um, I'm teaching at the University of Georgia. And so their MFA um, in narrative nonfiction, that their website. um, So UGA, you'd have to search UGA and MFA in narrative nonfiction. And you can learn some more about this kind of work that we're doing there. Um, And then, of course, on my Facebook page. Wonderful. And the DART Center, is that D-A-R-T? Yes, it is. And I I think it is dartcenter.org. Okay. And we'll have all of this when this is launched for people because, you know, now that we're flipping geniuses, we want to make sure that people get to to read about this and do it. As you say. I love it. it. Yeah. (laughs) I don't like to take myself too seriously. This has been wonderful. So thank you for your insight and your work and your time. And we'll talk. I'm available in the spring to teach. No problem. (laughs) Wonderful. It's been so good. All right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everyone, thank you so very much. And enjoy this beautiful, this conversation. Thank you, Jan. Thank you.